0: praise the Lord that we're able to come together to worship him even as we remember the occasion of Maundy Thursday. Let us pray. Lord, as your disciples constantly came before you to sit at your feet, to listen, to learn, Lord, we pray that you open our ears, our minds, our hearts May we receive your truth that it might not just store in our heads, but flow into our lives in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we draw nearer to Easter Sunday, uh, we are gathering for today's Maundy Thursday service. And we remember, as uh, Florence mentioned at the start of the service, we remember everything that happened in the upper room uh, before Jesus was arrested. Jesus washed his disciples' feet and they also had uh, their Passover feast, what is known to us as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. As I mentioned on Sunday, we'll be having food washing later, uh, but since we just celebrated communion on Sunday uh, and to make sure our service doesn't end at midnight <laughs> tonight, uh, we won't have another round of communion. Just remember okay, that these two events happened in Uh, On that day in scripture. Okay? Foot washing and holy communion, they happened together. But these two acts of remembrance, when we when we participate in foot washing, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we remember, we remember what is anchored in scripture that was read just now. We remember this new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples: that they love one another. As he had loved them, so they also must love one another. And for those who uh, aren't familiar uh, with, with the origins of this word Monday, Thursday, it comes from the Latin word mandatum. Okay? And this is something that we sort of like educate on every year. Okay, and mandatum in Latin means commandment. All right? And it comes from this. Verse of the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples. All right, so that's why Maundy Thursday. If you want to put it in an English, modern English term, it'll be Commandment Thursday. Okay? To, to remember the new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. Now, the larger context of today's passage, other than the foot washing and the Last Supper, can be found in John chapter 13, verse 1 where it says it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In a the sense, there are these, these, these are like the, the final moments that Jesus is spending with his disciples, his closest companions for three years. He called them friends, right? And so in his last few moments with them, he is preparing them for a life without his physical presence. And so, you know, before you you leave on a a very long journey or or if you know you're not going to see somebody again, you will always reserve your most important words for uh, that person. And so this is what Jesus is telling them uh, before he departs. And the big idea of his words to them, as well as today's message, is simply, love others as Jesus has loved you. Okay, so if you forget everything, uh, just remember this one, love others as Jesus has loved you. Now, the first thing I want us to look at today is this new commandment. Let me ask you, this commandment to love one another. Jesus calls it a new commandment. Is it new? What do you think? Is it a new command to love one another? Oh, you might be thinking about the 613 laws given in the Old Testament that, okay, Jesus is giving a new commandment, to override all those 613 laws. Right? But there is more... Along the lines of what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to thirty-nine, that the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these hang the law and the prophets. Jesus also clarifies in Luke chapter ten that our neighbor is whoever we love, right? Uh, not literal or cultural neighbors, but whoever we love. You know, those those are our neighbors. So. Loving others is not new. It is something that has been present in the Old Testament already. So that is not the new part of the commandment. But what do these commandments say about the standard of loving? To what extent are we commanded to love? According to Old Testament law and New Testament references to that law, that standard is love your neighbour as you love yourself. Now compare that with the commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. Is there something new there? I believe this is the, sorry, it's a little small and the the contrast not so good. Uh, It says, as I have loved you. I I believe that this is the key to the newness of this commandment. That is the, the standard, the yardstick for our love. Not just how we love ourselves, but how Jesus loves us. If you think about it, loving others as we love ourselves is a simple to understand but challenging to follow command. It's not something new to us. We we hear it all the time. In fact, this is probably one of the the very common passages that we preach on. Uh, Simple to understand but very challenging to follow. Why? Because we are selfish creatures because of our sinful nature. So, loving others as we love ourselves means extending our selfish desires and our selfish interests to others, which may actually be a definition of love for others in itself. So, we take all our efforts and, and all our pursuit for pleasure, provision, protection for ourselves and we apply it to others, you know, how we always want to Uh, make ourselves feel good, we want to provide for ourselves, we want to protect ourselves, we take that, we extend it to others. And that in itself is already difficult. Maybe parents would be able to love their children as they love themselves. Uh, Maybe spouses would be able to love their spouses as they love themselves. But even then, it's not very consistent, I'm sure. But Jesus takes that one step Further, beyond the standard of just loving yourself. And he redefines love. When Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you, he sets the standard for love to go beyond self love. Instead, Jesus' brand of love is entirely other centered, it is not self centered, it is centered on love for God the Father, love for mankind. Nothing that Jesus did was selfish. You know, nowadays there are many movies and TV shows where you know people—they are—they they, in a in a story there's like a character arc, right? And so uh, this person would be uh, a doormat. This person would be very uh, bumbling, and then they will discover, oh, they need to love themselves, right? Wow, so enlightened! I learned how to care for myself uh, instead of others, and that is portrayed as a good thing. Right? But that's not a good thing. There's a big difference between loving ourselves selfishly and being secure in our identity and having healthy self-esteem and confidence. There's a difference between selfishly wanting to, to do everything for ourselves and drawing healthy boundaries so people don't step all over us. So it's, it's not a good thing to be selfishly loving ourselves at the expense of others. Yes, Jesus wasn't a doormat, and He wasn't insecure. But His love was never a selfish love. It was always other-centered. My point is, Christ-like love is always other-centered, primarily in God, secondarily in others. And this part is crucial. Love for God is always the first and greatest commandment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 8 puts it quite clearly. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we see that love for God is the origin, the prerequisite for this love for others. Uh. Chapter 4, verse 19 to 20 goes on to say, We love because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And so to put it quite simply, if we have a love problem with God, we will have a love problem with others. This is one of the foundational truths of our Christian faith that love for God in a love relationship with God is our primary relationship and that will influence and affect our secondary relationship is which is with others and so if we have a love problem with God we will have a love problem with others and if we have a love problem with others it indicates a love problem with God. So something for us to just reflect about in the different relationships we have in our lives, in the different interactions, in our problems with people, in loving others. What does that indicate about our relationship with God? Now, how do you fix a love problem with God? That's a very big topic, but I will just summarize it in two quick statements. First is know God better, right? Uh, oops, how do I go back? Yeah, uh, chapter four, First John chapter four verse seven to eight uh, says, "Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love." And so, know God better. If we have a love problem with God, know Him more. Get to know Him through His Word. Get not, not just know about Him, uh, but know Him experientially. Know Him in a relationship. Seek to know Him. And so that, how do you do that? You do that through the Bible. You do that through uh, reading His Word, meditating on His Word, spending intentional time in prayer, going away to be with Him. Uh, all those things that will help you to get to know God better. So know God better. Know His goodness, know His beauty, know His love for you better. But it's not just knowing Him. Second is, respond to that knowledge better. So if we know that God is good, you know that it's beautiful, you know that He loves you, okay, good. Respond to that. Respond in worship. Respond in obedience. Respond in holiness. Respond in loving Him and others. So Jesus didn't have a love problem with God. How did Jesus love others? Well, Jesus demonstrates a range of his love for his disciples. And in following his example, we are commanded to love one another to both extremes. Two extremes. First extreme is found in his example of washing the feet of his disciples. Uh, I, I won't elaborate because I, this probably isn't your first Monday Thursday service. Huh? You know the, the implications, right? Uh, that back then, roads were very dirty, people's feet very smelly, they walked for hours. So this is a very dirty, dirty job, right? And it's the job of a servant, uh, the, the head of the home, the master, the highest, pankat an, will have their foot washed by the lowest one, right? And that is expected when they are going to sit down for a meal or whatever. And so, when they went for their, they, they sat down for their meal, nobody washed each other's feet because they all felt that they were Uh, higher than each other. Uh, They didn't even wash Jesus' feet, right? They forgot about washing each other's feet. And so, in in, uh, Jesus' example of washing the feet of his disciples, uh, he brought himself down to the most menial, the most insignificant, the most non-special, the most non-noticeable thing to do for his disciples. And something that was not necessarily expected of him. And so that was his first extreme example of love by bringing himself down and doing something that he wasn't supposed to be doing right, for his disciples. They were supposed to be doing for him. And then all the way to the other extreme which is dying for others. So Jesus loved his disciples by washing their feet. Okay as I have loved you by washing your feet. And then, also, he died for them. As he has died for them, that shows the extent of his love for them. John 15, 12, 14 says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. So in loving like Jesus... Who would humble himself down to do the most menial the 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 least important task the dirty work that no one wants to do when he didn't need to do it Uh, jesus who would sacrifice himself and go through intense pain uh, suffering not just inconvenience but torture for for the sake of his friends in loving like jesus where is the limit When do we go too far in loving others? According to the example of Jesus, never. You never go too far in loving someone else. And what's important is not just how Jesus loved, but also whom he loved. Let me repeat that. What's important is not just how Jesus loved, but whom he loved. We need to remember the immediate example, okay, he loved his disciples. Among his disciples, they were not exactly the most lovable bunch. They were a very dysfunctional bunch. Uh, you had uh, very impulsive, uh, very quick to anger. Uh, you, you had people with horrible pasts, sinful paths. Uh, you, you had people who, who used to uh, you know, be, be very unpopular, all sorts of people. You even have people who would betray Jesus, right? And so, he would love even them. But on top of that, uh, sometimes it's a, a bit difficult for us to identify with Jesus on the cross because we can't imagine ourselves being tortured, mocked, crucified. Not something that we've experienced. But let's look at whom Jesus loved before he was arrested, okay? Not just his disciples, He had meals with tax collectors. Our modern equivalent of these tax collectors maybe would be like going to a KTV with people who are there to do business that involves under-table money, uh, going there and singing karaoke with them. Okay, maybe. Uh, He ate with the Pharisees. Today, our modern equivalent probably going to a very uh, well-known that they are corrupt politicians' house. (laughs) for open house, okay? Uh, He washed the feet of, like, as I mentioned, his disciples, specifically those who would betray him, those who would deny him, those who would abandon him. So, we know Judas would betray him. We know Peter would deny him. All of them would abandon him. And so our modern equivalent would be something like maybe washing the toilet or throwing rubbish for people who pretend to be your friends but backstab you or they pretend they can't hear you or they avoid you when you need help because it's inconvenient for them so that's that's sort of our modern equivalent and of course Romans chapter 5 verse 8 while we were still sinners Christ died for us and every time we gather for holy communion we remember While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we repented, before we believed, before we followed Jesus, before we were transformed, He already died to take our place for what we deserved. And so why would Jesus love people like that? I think it's pretty clear that Jesus' love had nothing to do with the lovability of the people whom He loved. It, was not, it, it wasn't how lovable they were. Jesus' love for others was not based on how worthy they were of his love. And that brings me to my next point. You must love one another. The word must means command, right? Not an option. No conditions. The, the context of this commandment is given to the disciples to love one another. Uh, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think sometimes it's easier to love those outside the church right? because of several factors. Firstly, there's the element of honesty and integrity. As Christians, we are honest, right? and we don't pretend, at least we're not supposed to. For the rest of the world, people often present their best side. They tell us what we want to hear, whether it's honest or not. And so sometimes it's easier to love people outside the church because they are, well, they're lying to us. <laughs> they make themselves more lo- seem more lovable. Uh, secondly, the element of expectations. Outside church, we expect people to be sinners. So when someone sins outside the church, it is consistent with what we expect. But in church, we expect people to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. We expect people to be a new creation. We expect people to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so when people in church fail our expectations and they sin, we experience disappointment. And oftentimes, we also hold others to a higher standard than we hold ourselves. If you don't believe me, what do we tend to do when people make mistakes? We will. Our, our natural compulsion is we want to point and say how they were to blame what they did wrong how wrong it was, and so on, right? We, we we want to blame others. And what do we do? What do we tend to do when we make mistakes? We defend ourselves, right? We justify what we did, what we did, we downplay our mistakes. And so that is holding others to a higher standard than we hold ourselves. And that is often at the very heart of the sin that Jesus was most critical of, which is the sin of hypocrisy. So the command to love is not just extended to those who don't know what they do. It is also extended to those who know very well what they do, but they do it anyway. Let me repeat that. The command to love is not just to those who don't know what they do. command to love is also for those who know what they do and they do it anyway. And so this is something that I always teach in premarital counselling classes, uh, which is quick quick advertisement. If any of you want to get married in church, any of your children want to get married in church, make sure they go through premarital counselling classes. Okay? Don't go and book your wedding dates or whatever. Uh, you arrange premarital counselling classes first. Okay. Anyway, what I teach is that love is primarily a choice if you look at the bible the 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 bible's use of the word love specifically agape love which is used to describe god's love which is also the the same sort of love we're supposed to have for one another in this new commandment it is always used in the context of decisive action not impulsive feelings And so the command to love is always based on a choice of action. Not about, oh, suddenly I feel like this and so I will love. Yes, love can involve emotions. When we marry somebody because we love them, a deep emotion usually surrounds that relationship. Uh, I will always take this opportunity to assure my wife that even though love is a choice, I feel much emotion for her, okay? And so that, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to feel emotion in love. Uh, but if you marry someone you have zero feelings for, like in an arranged marriage, for example, it is still possible to love them because love is primarily a choice and that 's why, in marriage, the vow to love one another goes beyond circumstances that affects feelings that 's why the vows are for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness in health love one another uh, it, it, how, how will you feel if you were worse or poorer or, or in sickness you won 't feel as the same as if you were better, richer, or in health, right? So, love is not meant to be purely based on feelings. Now, I'm not advocating arranged marriages. I'm just saying that the choice to love should not be purely dependent on feelings. So, if love doesn't depend on feelings, what about liking those whom we love? Uh, We tend to... Like those who share similarities with us, we click well with them, right? Those people who have things in common with us, uh, similar interests, similar personality, uh, we click with them, and we tend to feel threatened by diversity. So that's why the root of so much conflict is because of difference, right? Differences in personality, differences in skin colour, differences in religious belief, differences in cultural values, and so on. So we tend to not like people who are different from us, especially in areas that are important to us. And often, morality has nothing to do with liking someone. So whether you like someone or not usually doesn't have much to do with whether they are right or wrong, or whether you are right or wrong. But we often see it that way. The the people who are bad from us are always bad and wrong. Uh, The people who are different from us are always bad and wrong. We tend to feel it that way. But that is not always true. Sometimes we just don't enjoy someone's company as much because of different preferences, different personalities, different cultures. But that doesn't mean that we can't choose to love them despite those differences. And so our decision to love and to act on it must not be held hostage by how we feel. You think of it logically. It is an impossibility to consistently obey a command that is dependent on feelings. Because if you don't feel like it, you won't obey it, right? So how can you always obey a command that is dependent on your feelings when your feelings change all the time? Can you imagine what the military would be like if they only obeyed orders when they felt like it. So by the mere fact that Jesus calls loving others to the extent that he loved us, a commandment makes it very clear feelings are not conditional for our obedience. I will say, however, that feelings often follow action. Uh, and I, I speak from experience, I'm sure many of you have also experienced this, that when you you do something, you don't feel like doing it, afterwards you feel, eh, not so bad. Right? You don't feel like going to a gym, but you drag yourself there, once you get started, it's like, eh, I'm glad I came. Right? So, friends, we must love one another even when others are not lovable, even when others don't uh, show that same sort of love to us. I'm not talking about go and chase chase people <laughs> who, who don't like you and then you go and profess your love for them. Not that kind of love. Huh? Okay, I'm talking about Christian agape love. Okay, So we must love others even if they are not lovable. Uh, there's a reason why the Bible uses the Im- imagery of family for believers. Why we call God our Father. Why we call one another brothers and sisters. Because family removes the element of choice of whom we love how many of you have liked every member of your family all the time got it <laughs> and for those who are married you, you chose to marry your spouse because you like them I'm sure but how many of you have liked your spouse all the time especially if they did something that drove you crazy got it maybe if you just got married la. <laughs> Oh. We must love others as Jesus loved us. Last point, last point. If we, uh, by this, all will know you are my disciples. This is the, the, the uh, fruit of loving one another as how Jesus loved us. If we took down all our religious symbols and we didn't label ourselves as Christians, would other people be able to tell that we are Christians just by watching us interact with each other? Because according to Jesus, our love for one another is our truest proof of discipleship. Not our baptism cert, not how many class, disciple classes we went through, uh, not the cross around our neck, not the songs that we sing, not how we spend our Sundays, but how we love one another. I often hear of people who have either left the church or rejected the Christian faith, not because they don't believe the gospel, not because they have a problem with Jesus, but they have a problem with his church. They have a problem with how his church behaves with one another. And that is a sobering truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 calls us ambassadors of Christ. We represent Him in a world that does not know Him. And if the world looks at us and sees division, petty squabbling, infighting, they don't want to be part of that. And we become stumbling blocks to the faith and salvation of others. Now friends, I don't say this to, to guilt you. Uh, I'm often guilty of not loving others as how Jesus has loved me. But in God's kingdom, including the church, our past failures don't define our future. And so that's why forgiveness is so crucial in our relationship with God and one another. Because it enables us to not be weighed down by the past and to be able to move forward. In one of my previous churches, uh, we had university students from another faith I won't mention which faith, uh, who wanted to sit through a worship service to find out more about our faith and why we do what we do. This happened a few times. They sort of like exchange program thing. Now, if such a group were to come here to this church in Penang and pay us a visit, would they be able to tell that we are disciples of Jesus simply by watching us interact with one another? In conclusion, I know that as a community of faith, we are not devoid of love. Definitely not. But just like any other church, we are imperfect in how we love and in whom we love. And so my appeal to you today is simply this. Keep trying to love one another as a choice, even if you don't feel like it. Even if you are imperfect in it. Don't just say, "Uh, it's too hard, and don't try. Keep trying to love one another in your imperfection. Depend on the Holy Spirit to turn those right motives into right executions and right feelings. And don't forget the new commandment, don't settle for the imperfect love that you might have experienced from others. Aspire to Jesus' standards of love. Love one another as Jesus loved us.